0: Good morning. It is a pleasure to be here with you this morning. My name is Jonathan Neufeldt, and uh, for those of you who may not know who I am, I am the Promontory Campus Pastor. Uh, If you've been around Central for a little while, you will know uh, that we have just recently started a new Promontory Campus. Uh, Just this past September, actually, we began this Promontory Campus, and so I just wanted to give you a little bit of an update in terms of what we have been doing. Uh, as I said, we started this past September, so we are almost two months in, uh, and things have been going very well. Uh, we've been meeting at the Promontory Heights Elementary School, and so uh, when we get there in the mornings, we do the whole set-up everything. So we're setting up the stage, we're setting up the chairs, all the band equipment, all of our banners that you see behind us. Um, and so. It has been going very well. Uh, We meet at 10.30 on Sunday mornings. Currently, we have uh, somewhere around 90 adults and about 50 to 60 kids that are in our kids program. So if you're doing sort of the ratio, the math in your head, uh, we've got a lot of kids. And so it has been a joy to have Crystal Stolp. Many of you will know her. Uh, She was here for many years, and so she has been helping uh, with our kids program. And we just have a fantastic team that has been Uh, with us and helping us grow and one of the the things that we really started promontory with the idea that we wanted to be able to reach out into our community so we often talk about you know how we can be engaging our neighbors how we can be talking to them get to know them get away from sort of this mentality that says well when i go home i close the garage door and i never talk to anyone else again See, we actually want to be there for the purpose of reaching out into our community. And so that's the whole uh, reason we ended up going into Promontory. And so it has been just a joy to be able to do that. Um, But this morning, I'd also like to ask for your help. Uh, You here at the Chilliwack campus commissioned us, sent us out. And so we'd like to ask for your help on one thing. Uh, This upcoming Christmas, we are going to be doing a sort of family fun night, sort of a way uh, that we can host sort of the community to be able to come in. We're going to do gingerbread decorating. Uh, There's going to be food, drinks, hot chocolate, hot apple cider, all of the good Christmas fun. Uh, And what we'd like to do is we'd like to be able to invite our friends, our neighbors, those who are around us in our community to be able to uh, really engage with them. And so we're asking if there would be some people from the Chilliwack campus who would be willing to come help us run that event, just set up some tables, maybe some chairs, maybe just cook a few hot dogs for us. That would just free us up to be able to actually engage with our neighbors and get to know them a little better. So if you think that that is something that you could help us with, please let me know. Uh, Or Pastor Chris, he is also organizing this with us. And uh, we're really looking forward to being able to put that on and get to know, have a little bit more of a presence within our community. So uh, if you think about that and you're willing to help, please let me know, uh, but also be praying for us. It has been an awesome opportunity that we've had, and uh, we are just delighted to be able to keep going and looking forward to what God will continue to do. So with that being said, let me invite you to turn to our passage this morning Uh, In Daniel chapter 2. If you have your Bibles open, I'll invite you to open up to Daniel chapter 2. It is a long chapter this morning, uh, as we read already, but I have to confess that I have been so excited about getting into Daniel. Uh, We here at Central, we plan our sermon series out a little bit, so I knew that Daniel was going to be coming, and I've been excited to get to Daniel for such a long time. And the reason is, is because Daniel has such a beautiful range in terms of of what's all in it. There are some beautifully very simplistic stories, right? If you grew up going to church, you probably heard the stories of Daniel in the lion's den or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three guys with funny names that got thrown into the fiery furnace, right? These excellent stories. And yet, they also have some very complex stories within them as well. As we've just seen today, you read through chapter 2 and you kind of finish it and you think, well, I'm not really sure what happened there. I know something did, but I, I can't really explain it. And so that's sort of the beauty of the book of Daniel is that you get this wonderful range all throughout of these different things and it's just such an enjoyable book to work through. And one of the things I want to just point out this morning is just how well the story is written, right? It really has everything that you need in a good sort of short story. You have this inciting incident. The king has these dreams. And so we, we're we wondering, well, okay, what are these dreams? And we're left to wonder, and then we get this conflict. And Nebuchadnezzar says, unless you can tell me what the dream is, I'm going to kill all of you. And so the you know, the tension starts rising and eventually Daniel gets brought in and he steps up and he says, no, I will interpret the dream and finally the climax comes when finally we get to hear the dream and we get this interpretation and Daniel even gives us sort of this, this falling action as we get the conclusion to what that all looks like. And did you notice how Daniel writes this story? Just think about it. Daniel himself, the man, had to at one point sit down and write out this story. And it's interesting because as he writes it, he doesn't tell us what the dream is. When Daniel writes it, he knows exactly what the dream is, yet he kind of keeps it off. He doesn't let the reader know right away. He sort of holds us in some tension right? Because he wants us to actually feel some of that tension that Daniel was going through, because the truth is, the dream wasn't known right away, and he keeps it back until the very end. So that's what I want to look through with you this morning. What is this dream, and what exactly does it mean? Well, chapter 2 begins with King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if you were with us here last week, you'll know we started the book of Daniel in chapter one, and we learned that the whole book of Daniel is actually taking place not within Judah or Israel, it's actually taking place in Babylon, right? Chapter one, verse one, we realize that, king, that the king of Judah and all of Judah has been conquered by Babylon, and in fact, the people have been dragged off into exile. They are prisoners, they are slaves, they are exiles in a foreign land. And so Daniel is actually one of those captives. And so we find in chapter 1, he actually gets hand-selected for a certain sort of program that the king comes up with to sort of buy his good graces into these exiles' lives. He's given, you know, food, education, clothing, a place to live, even a job opportunity at the end. And in fact, Daniel says, actually, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to be faithful to God through all of that. And at the end of the story, we come to... Uh, realize Daniel actually, because of his faithfulness, God blesses him for that, and Daniel ends up being an advisor to the king. Daniel is one of these advisors that the king would consult for various different matters, and that's where we start in chapter 2. Chapter 2 tells us that King Nebuchadnezzar is suddenly having these dreams. In fact, the Uh, The word there is plural. He had many dreams. Most likely it was sort of night after night after night. He kept on having the same dream over and over again. And he can't sleep. Finally, he's fed up. And he calls his wise men, all of these people who are supposed to be able to understand this stuff. And he calls them in and he says, all right, I need you to tell me what's going on. And all these wise men, well, I'm very important. So yes, I'm here. Tell me what the dream is. King Nebuchadnezzar says, no, I'm not going to do that. See, I think he was probably a little suspicious of these guys. Most likely he was thinking, you know what? They're just going to tell me whatever I want to hear. They're just going to lie to me. So he says, instead of that, why don't you tell me what the dream was? See, he figured if you can tell me what the dream was, you probably can also interpret it rightly for me. Now all these wise men, they start panicking, right? Uh, I can't do that, right? I, I, I can't just explain a dream. I can't just make it up. How am I supposed to know? So they come back and they say, well, hey, why, why don't you tell us what the dream is? And now Nebuchadnezzar is really angry, right? He's saying, you guys are just stalling for time. You don't actually know, right? Just imagine if you were, you know, you woke up one morning, And your wife looks at you and she says, I cannot believe what you did in my dream last night. You need to apologize to me. And you go, I, I can't. And she says, well, I'm not talking to you until you apologize. It'll take years for you to try and guess through what could have been in that dream that you might have done. Really, that's what these wise men are facing. And they're looking at the king and going, there's no possible way I can tell you this. How on earth am I supposed to do that? In fact, they say, verse 11, the thing that the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And this is a key passage or a key verse for our passage. You see, these wise men actually got something right. Only God could actually interpret what this dream was. In fact, they knew it. And in fact, unless God speaks, unless God does something, they could not do anything. Well, the king was furious. He said, get out. In fact, I'm going to kill every last one of you. And this is where now Daniel gets involved, because Daniel was part of this group that was going out to be killed. Daniel gets dragged into this story. But I want you to notice something about how he comes in, right? Daniel hears of what's going on. He goes to the captain and he says, well, what's happening? Captain explains, king's had a dream. He's going to kill everyone unless someone can interpret it. And what does Daniel do? Right there in verse 16, Daniel goes and he says, Daniel went and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation. So he runs in, he says, all right, I will interpret this dream for you. Notice what happens next. Verse 17 says, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek the mercy from God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men. Verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel. You notice the order there? Daniel goes out and he says, yes, I'm going to interpret this dream. But at that point, he had no idea what it was. Daniel wasn't saying that because he already knew. He was saying that. Why? Because he actually trusted that God could reveal it. You see, that is where Daniel rooted his faith. He actually was able to say, take that step out in faith and say, God will actually reveal this mystery to me. He was trusting that God's power would save him. Daniel trusted God's power. And I think for a lot of us, we just need to hear that reminder to trust in God's power because we know God can do things, but the truth is we don't often believe it. We know God is able to do all kinds of things, but we so rarely are willing to actually take that step and put ourselves in a place where we have to rely on God's power. You know, we we talk about uh, sharing the gospel with our neighbors, and we say this is something that God gives empowers us to do. And in fact, outside of God's work, we can't do anything, and yet it is so difficult, is it not, to actually put ourselves in a position where we have to rely, where we must trust in God's power. And I think one of the reasons it's so difficult for us is simply because it puts us in a position where we can't do it ourselves. Where we have to come to the realization, I am not strong enough, I am not powerful enough in myself to actually do this. See, Daniel was in this position. There was nothing he could do. Any more than any of these other wise men. He could take a random guess. But he steps out in faith. Why? Because he could trust that God was able to save him. And I love what he does next. Verse 20 and following, Daniel begins to praise God. And I think we just need to remind ourselves of that. That praising God comes as a result of putting our faith, putting our trust in Him. I think so often, we, we, we can show up on Sunday mornings, and it's, oh, right, yeah, we need to be praising God. And it's almost a wait. I wonder if sometimes... I know life is complicated, there's many reasons, but sometimes I think it's because we have not actually trusted God during the week that we have so little to praise him for. Daniel praises God, he trusts in God's power, but look with me at verse 20. Look at his response to what God says. He says, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Here Daniel gives us just a little bit of a foreshadowing of what this dream is going to uh, contain. Even though, again, he doesn't explain the whole dream for us, he just gives us a little hint in terms of what he prays for. He says that all seasons and times, kings being raised up and kings going down are all happening under the hand of God. So Daniel not only is trusting in God's power, he is trusting in God's sovereignty. That is, God's sovereignty is speaking about his ability to control all things. And in this case, he's talking about kings and nations. So Daniel goes and he meets with the king. He gets his appointment and he goes in and he says, well, I will explain this dream to you that God has revealed to me. And so he begins to explain this this complicated dream. He says there's this image or this statue and the head is made of gold, The, the chest and the arms, it's made of silver. Then you get this bronze midsection and then finally the legs are iron, but right down at the feet there's clay mixed into the iron." And Daniel says, a stone comes and it breaks apart the entire statue. It all falls down and is swept away by the wind. But the stone sort of grows up like a mountain and fills the entire earth. And we read that and we go, wow, now I know why Nebuchadnezzar needed someone to explain it. Because it doesn't make any sense. So, verse 37, Daniel begins to explain, begins to interpret the dream for him. Listen to what he says. Verse 37, he says, You, O king, The king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory into whom, into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. And I think a lot of times when we read that, we kind of recoil at that language I mean, that's that's very exalted language to say of just some king. And we kind of, we, we hold back. And it's funny because I think Nebuchadnezzar also would have recoiled at that, but for a very different reason. You see, kings like him were very used to people, you know, heaping praises upon them of all sorts of things. But did you notice how Daniel said that? Right there at the beginning, he says... You, O king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, nothing that you have, all of this majesty and might and power and strength that you have, all of it came from God and it was not your own doing. I think Nebuchadnezzar would have recoiled at that. What do you mean it's not my own doing? I'm the king. I'm the one who does all of those things. But Daniel's point is very clear. God allowed you to do everything that you have done. Daniel says, you are this head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. And Daniel goes on to say that, in fact, another kingdom will take over yours. They will be a lesser kingdom, but nonetheless, they will take over. In fact, by the end of the book of Daniel, that's exactly what we see happen. Persia actually takes over Babylon, right? And in case you're just a little rusty on your ancient Near Eastern history, uh, let, let me help you out. Babylon was the superpower at the time. They were the big guys on the street. However, no earthly kingdom lasts forever. So Babylon gets taken over by Persia, and then they rule for quite a while until a young man comes onto the scene by the name of Alexander. Today we call him Alexander the Great. He was this Greek military genius who, before he died at age 32, had taken over pretty much the entire Persian Empire. And thus, the Greek Empire was born. Persia was gone. Now we get into this bronze midriff that is Greece. After the Greek Empire rises the Roman Empire. This empire that is iron. They had the strongest military that the world had ever seen. And they were larger pretty much than any other empire before them. They stretched from Spain up to Britain, down to Egypt, and all the way over to Iran. I mean, this was a giant, giant empire, and yet it was brittle. It had feet made of clay. Why? Because it had stretched so far all of their ties, all of these sort of intermarriages and deals they had made, made them actually very brittle. And so Daniel's point is that all of these empires, all of the greatness, all of the vastness of them will all eventually be destroyed. But here's what I want us to notice. Daniel's talking about the next 600 years of world history at this point, right? He's walking through these different kingdoms and what I want us to realize is that he's talking about what has actually taken place in history. You know, sometimes we have this tendency when we read our Bibles to almost assume that what's going on in there is just sort of like made-up history, Or God only deals with with little Israel, this tiny little insignificant country, but the Bible doesn't have anything to say about what happens in the greater world. But in fact, what Daniel's talking about here is what's going to happen in world politics. And in fact, his point is this, God not only knows the future, but he will be directing it. You see, God is sovereign, not just over one little nation, Israel. He's actually sovereign over all the nations of the earth, over every kingdom that comes up. It came up because of God's say-so. This is what we mean when we say God is sovereign. He reigns over everything from the grand themes of our world to the everyday happenstance of our lives. Do you remember the story of King Hezekiah? King Hezekiah, he was a king of Judah, so this is now before Daniel, right? King Hezekiah finds himself in trouble with Assyria. Assyria was the big guys at that time, before Babylon. And they had actually come and they had surrounded the city of Jerusalem, the capital city. The whole army is encamped around them. Jerusalem is trapped. People are starting to starve. And Hezekiah falls on his face before God and says, God, only you can save us. And so God does. And he speaks a word to the king of Assyria, that is the enemy uh, king. And he says to him, have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins. God's point is, you think that you conquered all of these different places, that it was your greatness or your might? God says, I planned that a long time ago, and the only way you could do that is because I said so. And so God says, just a few verses later, He says, because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. God says, I'm going to turn you around from attacking Jerusalem. He says, I'm going to put a hook in your nose. The image here is that of a bull's ring, right? A ring in the nose of a bull. Right? A bull is not an animal you ever want to mess around with. They are strong, they are big, but you put a ring in their nose, a rope on there, and give it a tug, Oof. now that bull will follow. Right, The same idea with the bit in the mouth of a horse. God says, I am going to turn you around back where you came from. In fact, that's exactly what happens. God sends an angel, decimates the army, and the rest flee back to Assyria. And here's what's really interesting. We we hear a story like that, and you're like, okay, well, I mean, that happened in the Bible, but there's no proof, right? Actually, we have documents from Assyria. Not, Not Israel. From Assyria. And it's a letter from the commander back to the king. And he says... We have them trapped like birds in a cage. And then the record goes silent. The record goes silent because they didn't record what happened next. They never took, there was never a message, yes, we we captured Jerusalem. No, they had them surrounded and then they were gone. You see, kings didn't record their losses. But the point here is God is actually in control of all nations on earth. He's actually in control of everything that happens, and that means if God is in control, then he is also in control now. You know, it seems like every time you turn on the news, it's bad. It's always bad news whenever you turn it on. There's, you know, a civil war brewing in Spain. Africa, the Middle East, they've been war zones for who knows how long. It seems as though there's a legitimate threat of nuclear war. It sounds like world leaders are kids on a playground yelling at one another. And here we are caught in the middle of it. And it's easy to say, you know what? This is just all out of control. This is just chaos and nothing. There is no hope in any of it. But the message of the Bible again and again and again is that God is always in control. Even when it seems that kingdoms are are crumbling down, God is still in control. And I think rightly we look out at the world and look out even at our own country and we say, man, things are just changing. Things are changing way too fast. I mean, if you are over the age of, I don't know, 20 you have probably already seen massive changes in the laws of our own country. Things that were illegal 20 years ago are now not only legal, they are endorsed, celebrated, and defended. There are are big shifts that are happening. And it's easy to say, well, you know what? All of this is just outside of our control. And my answer is, yes. It's outside of our control control. But it has never been outside of God's control. You know, I think so often our our impulse to panic has come from the, the misguided thought that if it's outside of my control, it must be outside of God's. And I think that should probably tell us something about how we think about God. Do we think God is able to control only what I have control over? Or do we actually believe that the God of the Bible is sovereign over all things? The things I have control over and the things I do not. You see, that's the message of the Bible. God is in control even when we are not. Trust In God's sovereignty, trust in the fact that God is in control, that he not only knows the future, but he directs it as well. Leads us to the final point this morning. We are to trust God's power. We are to trust God's sovereignty. Finally, this morning, we are to trust God's kingdom. You see, the dream Nebuchadnezzar had that Daniel ends up interpreting, it wasn't just sort of a news broadcast. God didn't give this dream so that, hey, you should probably know what's going to come up in the future. Actually, look at verse 44 with me. It says, and in those, or in the days of those kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. See, God wasn't just talking about what's going to happen next. God was not just telling his people, hey, there's going to be four more kingdoms. There's been more after that. No, God was actually telling his people this, to point them towards the kingdom of God that was coming. You see, God is not only in control of all things, but he has a plan for it as well. God is actually working things towards a direction. And now while I think Nebuchadnezzar probably hadn't heard something like this before, Daniel certainly had. You see, all the way back, King David, first real king of Israel, God made a promise to him. He made a covenant with him. And he said, one of your sons down the line, he will have a throne that will never end. In fact, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So when Daniel heard this dream, he knew exactly what God was talking about. He knew exactly what God was saying. God was going to be faithful to his promises even though the Jews they're taken off into exile. They are being punished because God or they sinned against God. Even in that, God says to them, "I am still Working, And I am still going to bring about my promises. See, even in the suffering, even though it seemed bleak, hope was not lost because God was still in control. So I think we just need to remember that as we go through all periods where we are suffering, where things seem all out of order. God is still in control, and yes, he still has a plan, and yes, he is still faithful to his promises. So we can rest our trust in that rock-solid foundation. See, God had a plan for each and every one of these kingdoms. Babylon, he was using to bring the Israelites into exile. Persia, he uses to send them back. Cyrus is the first king of Persia and he sends them back. He even gives them money so that they can rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. When the Greek army rushes through the Persian Empire, in fact, what they do is they bring with them the Greek language. It now became the trade language across the entire empire. Everyone spoke Greek. So that when the New Testament writers started writing, they wrote in Greek so that everyone could understand it. In fact, when the Roman Empire came through, they brought peace in areas where there hadn't been peace before. They brought road systems so that people could travel and move from city to city where that hadn't been before. Each step by step, God had been preparing the scene for when Jesus would finally come. And so in Mark 1.15, Jesus says this. He says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. You see, this is what God had been working towards. This is where God had been directing history so that the coming of Jesus Christ would be there so that the proclamation of the gospel might go forward. God is not just randomly doing things. He's not in control without a plan. He is working things together to bring things into Jesus Christ. As Daniel says, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. So easy it is for us to get focused and to put our trust in whatever we see in front of us. Right? We live in Canada. We live in a very blessed land. We have rights, we have freedoms, we have protection of law, and we ought to be grateful for all of these things. But the truth is, there will be a day when they are taken away from us. Canada, just as a nation, will not last forever. I'm not making predictions here, I'm just telling you, no nation on earth ever lasts forever, and this one won't either. The Canada we know may not last through our lifetime. And so the question is then, where are you going to place your trust? What are you going to place your trust in? Jesus comes to establish a kingdom that will not end, that will not fail. This is where we are called to place our trust, our hope in a place that will never be put to shame. And you might say, well, that sounds great, But I don't see the kingdom that Jesus set up. Jesus didn't set up this physical, earthly kingdom. So what does that actually mean? Why didn't he? Why didn't Jesus just set up a kingdom here on earth when he was here? Jesus as God himself, sitting on a throne, ruling on the earth, perfect and glorious. And the truth is, it would be of no use to any of us. If we did not have peace with God, what good would it be if Jesus set up an earthly kingdom, but we could not approach him? All that would have been is a monument to what we could not attain. See, we need to realize we've actually sinned against God. This holy and perfect God, this one who not only knows the future but directs it, we have sinned and rebelled against him. Like a rebel trying to overthrow a king, we have fought against God. And so the question then is, how on earth can we be right with God? And that is what Jesus came to do. Mark 1.15, he says, repent and believe. Two halves of the same thing. That is, repent, turn away from your sins, have nothing more to do with them, and instead, believe in what Jesus Christ has done for you. You see, Jesus lived a perfect life. And he died on a cross, not because he had sinned, but in order to pay the penalty that we had incurred. He died in our place. He died to pay for our sins. And so the truth is, the glorious gospel is, that for anyone who would place their faith in Jesus Christ, we would be made right with God. This eternal kingdom that Jesus has founded, we would be a part of, and that nothing on earth can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That is our hope. That is where our trust is secured. And you might say, well, that sounds great, but that doesn't change the storm I'm going through. That doesn't change the fact that I'm still going through suffering and pain, and it still seems as though this world's in chaos. Does it make any difference? My answer is it makes all the difference in the world. It's true, all the boats in the harbor will go through the same storm, but it's those whose anchor is secure that makes it through. You see, that is what we are talking about. Being anchored, being rooted in Jesus Christ may not change the storm, but it keeps us secure through all of that. When the test results what we get back, they're positive when our children start walking away, and when we find ourselves all alone, we have to ask the question, what do we trust then? What will we place our trust in? Trust in God's power, trust in God's sovereignty, and trust in God's kingdom through Jesus Christ. This morning as we close, I invite the worship team to come forward I'm also going to invite those who are serving communion to make their way to the front as well. This morning we're going to transition into a time of communion. And communion, or the Lord's Supper, is really it is a symbol of what Jesus Christ has done. It's a symbol of his body that has been broken. His blood that has been shed for us. It's a symbol that is given to the church to be a reminder of what Jesus Christ has done. And so communion is open to all who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Those who have repented of their sins and believed in Jesus Christ. We invite you to come forward and to receive communion with us. But if you're here this morning and you're not at a place in your own spiritual walk where you call Jesus your Savior and Lord, we just invite you to stay where you are. Spend some time and contemplate even what Jesus has done. There'll be people on the sides who'd love to pray with you. And please don't feel singled out. Know that every person who is here at one point was at a place where they, know they did not partake as well. But for those of us who will partake in the Lord's Supper, I just want to invite you into the reminder of what Jesus Christ has done to where our hope is utterly secure. It is because of the sacrifice Jesus Christ has poured out on our behalf. So let's pray together.